We go to Discipleship Hour, and Ryan has a beautiful slide that's up there. And movies and videos, and the internet all this. I'm a Neanderthal. But <laughs> <laughs> I just have the old way of doing it. So I invite you, obviously you can see that Pastor Aaron is not here. He's celebrating Daniel's right, 13th. And uh, taking him out on a special time, so that's wonderful. And uh, he will be back next week. We've been going through to see Ephesians, and we are taking a slight break from that. You can see in the bulletin uh, that we're looking at Acts 2. So I invite you to turn uh, to Acts 2. I think it's, if I remember the number right on the Pew Bible or your chair Bible, the Pew chairs, it's page 909, so if you don't have a Bible. Now, I always do a terrible thing, I read from the a different version. Sorry, I just haven't quite in the years, I've got notes all through it, so uh, I'm reading from the NIV, you're following the ESV, but it's pretty good. It's all about it. <laughs> this is NIV 1984, so, oh, is that still in good? All right, good. Let's uh, read God's Word together. This is the portion of Scripture that uh, we'll be looking at. We're going to uh, focus on the first 41 verses. So it's a little bit longer, but it's a glorious passage that uh, is about Pentecost. Pentecost. So let's follow along as we read from God's Word. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place, Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews, from every nation under heaven, when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, Lamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them. And they said, we have too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews, and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. 
even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. They will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above, signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Man of Israel. Listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life and you will fill me with joy in your presence. Brothers, I tell you with confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried. And his tomb is here to this very day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne, seeing what was ahead. He spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life. We are all witnesses of the fact, exalted to the right hand of God. He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit. And he has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And the people heard this. They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all those who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Many other words he warned them and pleaded with them. Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized. And about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Now that's the great historical account of Pentecost. As we're going to look at this morning, so let's pray and ask the Lord to help us do that. For great God and Father, we thank you for um, your word. We thank you that it recounts for us the great events that our Lord Jesus Christ accomplished in his coming in his entire life, in his death for us 
on the cross in his glorious and powerful resurrection, his ascension, and as we've read here, the pouring out of the Spirit. From the posture of his authority in heaven, he has poured out the Spirit. You, our Father, through the Son, has given us the Spirit which brings the new age to pass. We pray that as we look at this event, we pray that you will instruct us about its significance, its meaning, its application to our lives. May we rejoice in you, our Father, who has planned for all eternity what our Lord Jesus Christ accomplished and what the Spirit applies. And may we leave here changed and transformed those who look unto Jesus, those who know the Spirit's work in our life, those who know the hope of the Gospel in our daily life and experience as we live before you, anticipating the coming again of our Lord Jesus. So help us to this end. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Why Act 2? Why Pentecost, right? Well, the first thing is, we're not going to get into debates over charismatic gifts. That's how most people treat Pentecost. It's disastrous. It's not what the chapter is about, as we'll soon see, but many, many people just get hung up on Acts 2, and they say, well, do we speak in tongues today, and do we prophesy, and so on? I think that's a fundamental misunderstanding. Instead, we're going to look at this text, and the reason I've chosen it is to go back to the historical grounding, right? and we can look at other events too, death of Christ, the life of Christ, death of Christ, resurrection, ascension, but we're going to focus on Pentecost, the historical grounding to what the Apostle Paul has been reminding us in the book of Ephesians, and so this is complementary with what we've been doing over the last five weeks. Remember, we've been studying, so it's, we've had five messages on the book of Ephesians, and we're now through chapter one. And in that book, right, uh, he is assuming all of the grounding that we see in the Gospels, and particularly now in the opening chapters of the book of Acts. And since Aaron would not let me touch Ephesians. <laughs> I said to him, would you like me just to continue in looking at Ephesians 2, leaving off, you're picking up where you left off, he says, no, 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 no. <laughs> He's guarding the book, right? Uh, so he can touch it, but so I said, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go around you, <laughs> and I'm going to focus on what Ephesians 1, in many ways, is assuming, right? Paul's building off the great events of Christ's work and life and death and resurrection ascension, and particularly uh, Pentecost. So let me just remind you what we looked at in terms of Ephesians 1. Let's get my Ephesians in here. So after that opening greeting, just in chapter 1, right? So first two verses, Paul, typical greetings. He then turns to one glorious uh, sentence, right? <laughs> one sentence. Uh, he breaks all the rules of grammar. Your teacher here is like, hey, you needed to put a period somewhere. But he goes on from verse 3 through 14. One sentence in the original. It's one doxology of praise. He's really working out there, right? So we, Paul's God-centered. It's a good reminder for us, right? His focus is on the worship and praise of the triune God. Right? So we see in this very passage, Father, 
Son, Holy Spirit, the triune God who has planned all things from eternity, who then has brought about that plan in history, centered in the Lord Jesus Christ and the giving of the Spirit, right? So that's why when we looked at that, uh, those, those verses, 3 through 14, in some sense, uh, Paul and Romans will say that all things are from God. All things are through Him. All things are to Him. Well, that's really what we have in these, these verses. So he begins by speaking of the work of the Father and choosing us before the foundation of the earth. Right? So that's Ephesians 1, verses 4 through 6. He then speaks of the redemption that right, the Father chose us in Christ. Well, Christ now has to come to secure all of the choosing of the Father and uniting us to Him. So in Christ, in the Son, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Uh, ultimately, in Christ, we have everything being headed up. This glorious passage that speaks of Christ's lordship, His kingship over all things. The very purpose of creation is to make everything come under the feet of Christ. He is the head over all things. And then he goes on to speak of the Holy Spirit. In God's great plan, he sent his Son, and he's brought about, and he's given us the promised Holy Spirit. Remember, remember that little word, promised. Right? Very, very important. Something from the Old Testament was promised in terms of the Spirit. Of course, Acts 2 will now unpack that promise uh, for us. But he speaks of the promised Holy Spirit who seals us, who's the deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance. God has put a stamp on us and said, they're mine. It's a permanent possession. He owns us and gives us the Spirit as that deposit and down payment. And then Paul, last week, we looked at his prayer. Very important, right? He says in verse 15 of Ephesians 1, for this reason. That phrase is important, isn't it? What he has been rejoicing in and praising God for. His work of election, his work of redemption, his giving of the Spirit, he then turns to prayer. Paul always prays according to God's plan and purposes. He doesn't just say, you know, let's just pray for anything. For this reason, because what God has done for us, he turns all of that into prayer. That's how his petitions work. He prays that we may have a spirit of wisdom and understanding. What's that go back to? That's verse 9 and 10. In Christ, all wisdom and understanding has come. He wants us to know that wisdom and understanding. He wants the eyes of our heart to be enlightened, so that we will know in that enlightening of the heart the hope of his calling. What's the hope of his calling? He's just been telling you that. In eternity, God has planned all things. He's given us a hope of calling in Christ Jesus that he's summed up all things. That's our calling, right? That's our hope. And he wants them to know that, right? He wants them to know their inheritance. Their inheritance ultimately goes back to the Old Testament. All of God's promises to Israel through the land ultimately will come in the new heavens. He wants them to know that's our inheritance, that will be ours. And then he wants them to know the power of God in their life. And the power of God, when Paul thinks of power, he doesn't think of nuclear bombs. He doesn't think of uh, you know, mighty militaries. Right? He thinks of the work of the Lord Jesus. There's no greater demonstration than power. And he piles up words for power. Right? I want you to know what power, his mighty strength. The mighty power of God is seen in the resurrection. I want you to know the power of that resurrection. I want you to know the power that has seated Christ on his throne and put all things under his feet. And he says there that all things are under his feet for the sake of the church. 
what's, what's Paul assuming here, right? Well, he's praying that these things will be true in our life, but he's assuming all the events that occur, right, in the Gospels and in the book of Acts, particularly the opening chapters of Acts, the Ascension. Even Pentecost, right? The promised Holy Spirit has been poured out. That's Pentecost, right? And so what we want to look at is today, right, is how Paul is in praying for this. I'm going to go back to the grounding of it, where this occurred, right? Now, we'll see next week. So we'll let Aaron pick up next, next week in chapter 2. Uh, we'll see how the power of God in Christ's resurrection, ascension, giving of the Spirit works out in our life. And the first place it works out in our life in Ephesians 2 is in our conversion, right? So that every conversion is the very power of God that raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at the right hand of God, right? And the whole lesson we'll pick up on conversion, right? The heart of a Christian life in new generation. Right? You need to be converted, dead in your sins, you need to be made alive. And then you'll go on in that chapter and speak about the power of Christ at work to create a new humanity called the church. Bring Jew and Gentile together and so on. We'll leave that for Aaron. But today, we're going to go back and look at some of these events that undergird, that he, Paul's assuming as he's praying that the Ephesian church will be reminded of them and experience all the benefits of that in their life. Of course, we can't look at death, resurrection, ascension. We'd be here for a long time. Just this last weekend, I was teaching on... Uh, work with Christ yesterday to modular. We have all these ways of selling courses at the seminary, right? So, so you spend eight hours in one day going through uh, the work of Christ, and so we walk through death, resurrection, ascension. We're just going to focus on Pentecost, and the reason for that is it's often misunderstood. Paul assumes it in terms of his saying, the promised Holy Spirit, and in truth, Right? You need all the events of Christ's work to have his work. You can't have his atoning work without a resurrection. You can't have even the atonement without a life. And you can't have uh, his resurrection without ascension. Right? And you can't have the Spirit being poured out. But Pentecost often is misunderstood, but it's a very, very, very important event. In fact, you could say it is the last event of Christ's first coming. In his first coming, you have conception. You have entire life ministry, all the way to ascension. But it doesn't just end with ascension, where he's seated at the right hand of God. The Lord Jesus has to do something from that posture of authority. And what is that? He has to pour out the Spirit. Unless he pours out the Spirit, his work has not been completed. And that's what will be presented here in terms of Pentecost. So it's not a debate about spiritual gifts and whether he's speaking tongues. It's a debate of whether Christ really is Lord and Messiah, Lord and Savior. And we'll see that uh, Paul or Peter makes it very clear in terms of the event of Pentecost and how he explains it. Jesus is precisely Lord and Christ. He's the only Lord and Savior. And that's why they must repent and believe and come uh, to know him. So four steps. I know this doesn't fit well. You need three steps in sermons, right? But uh, four steps. Uh, sorry, we just let the text govern this here, so we're going to set context. I always have to do that. Look at the event, chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. The explanation of the event, right? So you have the, the event occur. And then, as the crowd is wondering, what on earth is this about? We'll see some of them are pretty cynical. Uh, they're all drunk. 
Peter says, don't think so. This is far more important than that. And so we'll look at the explanation of the event in verses 14 through 36, and then just draw some application for us, 36 through 41. So context, event, explanation, and application. So context, right? So you're in Acts 2. Obviously the context here is, right, Christ's whole first coming has now come to an end. Uh, in the Gospels, at the end of each of the Gospels, you have the death and resurrection of Christ. After the resurrection, right, there's 40 days by which the Lord appears and disappears. So in that glorified resurrection body, it's different than it was pre-resurrection. He is able to show up, go through doors. He's able to come and go. It's a physical body, yet it's a glorified body. So the disciples don't know when he always shows up. We have accounts of this. Uh, at the end of the Gospels, we have it in Acts 1. We have uh, 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus appeared to 500 at one time. So he appears. He's meeting with his disciples. He's teaching them 40 days he's there. But that's not going to continue. They can't expect through the rest of their life and ministry, Christ is going to be there showing up. This is the importance of the ascension. So in chapter 1, right, as you have chapter 1, Jesus then prepares them for his departure. This is going to now be permanent until he returns again. So we don't expect Jesus to appear to you. He has now taken his glorified humanity out of this realm, and he now is seated at the right hand of God, and he now pours out the Spirit, but he will not be returning until he comes again. And of course, that's what the first part of the book of Acts is about. Right? So we read in verse 3 of Acts 1, right? After his suffering, Luke says, he showed himself with many convincing proofs. Uh, he met with his disciples, verse 4, on one occasion. While he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem. He says, wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. And of course, that's true. You go back even into John the Baptist. John the Baptist spoke about the coming of the Spirit. Christ will come, and he will baptize us in the Spirit. Jesus then says, John 14 through 16, I will depart, I will go to the cross, and I will give you the Spirit. Right? Uh, John 7, the Spirit has not yet come. Because Christ has not yet been glorified, right? So he's been teaching them all about this. So he says, don't leave Jerusalem. Wait for the gift the Father has promised, which you've heard me speak about. John baptized with water. But in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Right? So, 40 days. He then will depart. Right? In fact, before he departs, they ask him, they say, Lord, when are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus then says in verse 7, it's not for you to know the times and dates, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. Jesus doesn't deflect their answer. He ultimately says, yes, the kingdom will be restored. The kingdom is really coming in its fullness now. And of course, it's going to be tied to Pentecost. Jerusalem, where does Pentecost take place? Jerusalem. Where does the book of Acts go from Jerusalem? Judea. Samaria. Ultimately, it ties into the Gentiles. That's the role of Cornelius, right? The book moves from Jerusalem. And where does the book of Acts end? Rome. <laughs> Rome is seen as, right, the center of the world. Right? 
So this is how Jesus is saying, I will depart, I will give the Spirit, that this kingdom that I have brought will then expand from the Jerusalem site, ultimately to an international community, to the uttermost parts of the earth. Then he is taken up in a cloud. You can imagine, they're looking and saying, where is he going? Is he going to come back again? And the angels make it very clear. They say to them, men of Galilee, verse 11, uh, you, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way. Right? So that means publicly, visibly. And as you've seen him go into heaven. Right? So the ascension. Now, we won't spend time looking at all the importance of the ascension, but it's crucial. He has to leave. He continues his work as the great king and high priest. He continues to intercede for us. He continues to rule over this world. Right? He's not a king who's coming. That's true, he is. He's a king now. Right? He's a lord now. Everything in this history is being orchestrated by King Jesus. That's the point of the ascension. Yet then he says, wait. Ten more days go by. Right? They're not told. So we'll go back to Acts 2. Um, ten more days go by. They're not told when it's going to happen. But it happens then on Pentecost. So that leads us to a description of the event. And so we read in chapter 2, really verses 1 through 13 is now the fact or the event that Jesus has now been anticipating now occurs. And it says, Luke says in verse 1, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole place. They saw uh, tongues of fire on their heads and they spoke with known languages, right? Now, Jesus didn't say it was going to happen in 10 days, right? He said, wait. So there's about 120 disciples who are gathered, fasting, praying, saying, we're waiting for the coming of the Spirit. It happens on Pentecost. That's not accidental. And Pentecost isn't just some event that occurs out of nowhere, right? It's rooted in the Old Testament. We call it Pentecost, just from the Greek that translated the day, right? Which means 50. Right? 50 days after Passover. Right? So remember in Jesus' death, it's around Passover time. 40 days he's been appearing, 10 more days, so it's 50 days after his death. In the Old Testament, the Pentecost was also known as the Feast of Weeks. And the Feast of Weeks had a couple of significance to it. One was, right, so from Passover on, so for 50 days, the nation of Israel would be keeping the Feast of Weeks. It's a long time. And the Feast of Weeks celebrated the harvest, right? the first fruits of the harvest. They're giving God, sort of like our Thanksgiving, right? We give God, we shouldn't give them, right? our country doesn't do much of this anymore, but we give God thanks for his provision, for his harvest. For, and it was the first fruits of the harvest. And the Feast of Weeks also celebrated an anniversary of the giving of the law at Sinai. These are crucial events in Israel's history, right? Passover. Celebration for 50 days from there of God's provision. Uh, the giving of the law. Right? All of that significance, right? All of that now will be seen to be all of those Old Testament events meant something. They pointed forward to something. And they ultimately point forward to this great event, right? What Passover pointed forward to has been coming Christ. What the celebration that they've been looking forward to is now he has brought. And it's tied now to giving of the Spirit and the bringing of an entirely new age. Now Luke says, right, as the event occurs, mighty 
things occur, right? So they're all sort of natural phenomena. They hear a sound. Uh, they see a sight, right? So wind comes, the sound. They see tongues of fire, light tongues of fire, right? So they're sitting on their heads. It's burning up their head. It's light tongues of fire sitting on their head. They see it. And then, amazingly, they speak in known languages that they don't know. So it's nothing to do with unknown languages here. The text makes that very clear, right? So these areas of uh, sound, sight, speech, in some sense that's natural, but these now are supernatural. And the crowd then is amazed. Verse 5, you read, those standing in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews, they hear these people speaking the gospel to them in known languages. Now they're amazed because they're Galileans. That's a slam. Galileans were known for having not being able to pronounce certain words. They had certain guttural problems and so on. So they're saying, these guys got perfect accents, right? I mean, these guys are able to communicate to us. They're not stumbling over as you learn a new language. No, these people have never known these languages. And suddenly, they're communicating in perfect accents to us the mighty deeds of God. Right? So these tongues of fire, right? The speaking in these languages, the Another important area here is, is the nature of this international community that's got. They're Jewish, right? That makes it very clear. They were staying in Jerusalem, verse 5, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. It's another way of representation of these Jewish people all over the world. In the Old Testament, after the ten northern tribes got destroyed, right? They had to send them out. It's called the Diaspora. They went all out into the world. Many of the Jewish people had left but they were coming back now to Pentecost to celebrate. They've been there probably since Passover. And they've been now celebrating this. So this is the Jewish community now returned. And the, uh, the disciples are able to speak in the language of all of where they dispersed. And it sort of speaks about the world in a broad sense. Right? Most people see what's going on here as a kind of reversal of Babel. Think that's correct, right? At the Tower of Babel in the Old Testament, right? What happened? This was a case of judgment. Us in our rebellion and, and uh, saying, You will not spread about over the earth. God says, All right, I'm going to divide you by languages. And then eventually we have to spread. Here, with all those divided languages, you still have all these languages being spoken. But now they are being able to speak in those languages about the one name of Jesus. These Jews are now being sort of brought together. And of course, later on in Acts, they'll be bringing Gentiles together. Ephesians 2 will pick that up. And they're hearing about the mighty promises of God. But the crowd is perplexed. And we see that in verse 12. Amazed and perplexed, they ask, right? What's going on here? What's the meaning of this event? Right? So, some are amazed. Shocked, right? Some are just sort of confused. Others, as you have in every crowd, is the sex. Right? They're drunk. They've had too much of the spirits. Well, we'll see that it's not the spirits they've had, they've had the Holy Spirit. Right? So here you have, right? Peter then stands up, and this leads to the third area in terms of we looked at context, sort of the, the, the description of the event. Now Peter will explain. And of course, he explains this event not by pulling a rabbit out of a hat. Right? He explains the event by going back to where would you think? The Old Testament. Everything in the New Testament is explained by the Old. Right? This is why you have to know your Old Testament. 
asked why. No, I don't even mention that. Uh, Andy Stanley, right? You know, who wants to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament? Don't do that. You need the whole Bible, right? And you can't make sense of what Jesus is doing and what's happening in the New Testament without the Old, right? And so Peter stands up in verse 14 and he says, with the other 11, he raises his voice, he says, fellow Jews, and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this. These men are not drunk, so let's disavow that interpretation. And let me now explain the true explanation of what is going on. Now, there's two features here, right? You can't look at all the details here, but when he quotes Joel 2, right? As any New Testament author quotes the Old Testament, they quote a passage, but they're assuming you know the entire context of the Old Testament. The Old Testament comes to us in the whole storyline. The Old Testament unfolds step by step by step. Promises are given, right? Joel 2 is obviously a prophet. He lives at a certain period of Old Testament history. He lives long after the giving of Moses, the giving of the promises. Uh, he lives um, you know, way at the end of the Old Testament era where God's promises have come through. Covenant promises all the way back from Genesis 3.15 and so on. So this quotation isn't just random. <laughs> All right, well, I'll keep speaking loud until he comes, right? It's not just random, right? It is going to be then saying, you can't understand what's happening here apart from Old Testament promises, Old Testament expectations, and so on, right? So Joel 2 even alerts us to this, right? Verse 17, uh, verse 16, now this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel in the last days. That's tied to the prophets. As you go through the Old Testament, we won't spend time working through sort of the storyline of the Old Testament, but all the way from the fall, right? You have the promise of a coming Redeemer. You have the promise of... Uh, he told me that. And by the time you get to the prophets, bound up with the coming of Messiah will be the giving of the Spirit. And that becomes the importance here. That's what Joel 2 is picking out. Right? So we'd have to spend time looking at all the prophets, but 
Joel is one of those prophets with Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and so on, that as he looks forward, he looks forward to a future day, which, of course, has now come in Christ. This future day where the King will come, the Christ will come, the Messiah will come, and what will happen is a new covenant will arrive, uh, the Spirit will be poured out, and that's what Joel 2 is picking up. In fact, Joel is picking up one aspect of the Spirit's coming. There's two aspects of the Spirit's coming, right? Other prophets pick up the other aspect, but let me give both aspects to you. When the Old Testament prophets look forward, they said, Messiah will come, he will pour out the Spirit of the New Age, and the first thing that will happen is that all of God's people, and he's speaking of uniquely the covenant community, in contrast with Israel, all of God's people will know God. All of God's people will have circumcised hearts. All of God's people won't be like Israel. Israel, you go back to Israel in the Old Testament. Within Israel, there was what we call a remnant. Sometimes you had, right, you had believers within the nation, many of the Israelites, right, they were, may have, they were part of the covenant community, but they weren't necessarily believers. A good example of this would be Ahab and Elijah. <laughs> Ahab, even as a king, was an unbeliever. Elijah, as a great prophet, was a believer, right? You have this all the way through Israel's history, right? So that what the prophets look forward to is the coming of a new age, where all of God's people, and of course this gets applied to the church, will know God. Right? We speak of this in terms of regeneration. Right? The Spirit comes and makes us alive. It's not just a few in that community. The entire community knows God. Right? This is why we believe the church is you're only a member of this church if you profess faith that you are converted, that you come to faith in Christ. Right? Some churches uh, will accept little infants and babies and so on who are not converted. Right? That's not what's being said here. Right? The church is made up of regenerate, believing people. That's what the Old Testament anticipated. Yet there's another sense in which the Spirit will come. And this is what Joel picks up. But when the Spirit comes, is He will gift us all. So not only will all know God and have forgiveness of sins and a new heart, but we will all be gifted by the Spirit. We will all prophesy in that sense, right? Uh, we will not just look to certain leaders. Now, in the Old Testament, uh, often the coming of the Spirit in terms of power and gifting was upon a few, right? Prophets would have the Spirit put on them. Priests would have the Spirit put on them. Kings, in particular. Even the term uh, anointed one, Messiah, is speaking of the Spirit's gifting. Even Saul, think of Saul. Disaster Saul. Look at him in 1 Samuel. Saul had the Spirit of God come on him, and the Spirit of God was taken off of him. It doesn't mean he was regenerate. It means that he was empowered and gifted, but that was not permanent. Right? In the Old Testament, right, that only the gifting of the Spirit came upon unique leaders. Right? Numbers 11 is a crucial text here. You remember that occasion where uh, Moses needs uh, help leading the nation of Israel, so God calls in 70 elders. And all of those elders have the Spirit poured out on them. And what those elders do in having the Spirit poured out on them is they prophesy. And that doesn't happen to the entire people. And Moses says something there, which is really sort of a wish, a desire, that eventually Joel too will pick up. Moses says, 
I wish that all of God's people would prophesy. I wish that all of God's people would have the Spirit. Right? So it assumes that they all did. What does Joel say? Right? You go further on in terms of God's plan. Joel says, in the last days, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. The people he's speaking of here is the covenant community. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. That's not typical. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Servants, both men and women, will pour out my Spirit in those days they will prophesy. Right? This refers here to the gifting of the church. Right? All of us, if we're believers, are gifted and empowered by the Spirit of God. We don't have to say gift. Right? This doesn't mean that uh, we all do the same thing in the church. Paul lays that out very clearly in the New Testament. Some are called to leadership, others called hospitality. But we all have the gifting of the Spirit. We are all born of the Spirit, and we are all gifted of the Spirit. And particularly this notion of prophecy, we won't develop this in detail here, but this prophecy idea is the prophet was the one who spoke on behalf of God to the people. And what's being anticipated here is that the people of God will all know God. They will be able to speak to each one the word of God. Right? This isn't dealing with some special kind of prophecy. It's dealing with the fact they will know God intimately. They will be able to communicate that to one another. In the New Testament, 1 John 2 will say, uh, no one needs to teach you. <laughs> you know God. Well, of course, we have teachers. But there is a sense in which the Spirit of God has made us alive, gifted all of us. That's what Joel 2 is anticipating. But from Joel's perspective, this is still future. What the Apostle Peter now says, in quoting that text, he now turns to ultimately explanation of it. He will say, right, and this is where we pick up in verse 22, he quotes the text and then he expounds the text. Right? So here he says, you want an explanation for what's happening? Joel 2. You want me to explain what's happened in Joel 2? I'm now going to do it in verses 22 and following. And notice what he does in verse 22 and following is he ties the giving of the Spirit to Christ. So this is now a demonstration that the Messiah has come. That the Messiah has done something for us. He's accomplished our salvation. He has now gone to a cross. He's been raised from the dead. He's been seated at God's right hand. And that very work which is triumphant, that very work which is finished, right? he claims Christ on the cross, it is finished. That very work which now he has been seated at the right hand of God, from that posture of authority, he now pours out the Spirit. He's the one who gives the Spirit. That's why what he will say here is Pentecost is not only proof that what the prophets look forward to has now come, it's also proof positive that Jesus is the Lord of the universe. That Jesus is the only Savior. That Jesus is truly the Messiah. Right? Without Pentecost, in some sense, you wouldn't have that full proof. Right? Even in his resurrection. As glorious as it is, you still need, if it's going to fulfill what the Old Testament said, the Spirit must be poured out. We know that the new age is here because this event occurs. Right? And that's exactly what he explains in verse 22 and following. Look, we won't look at each of the texts here in the sense of lay it all out, but what he does here is he basically walks through the life and ministry, right? Then his death, resurrection, ascension of Christ, doesn't he? So he says in verse 22, 
This is how you're to understand Joel 2. Joel looked forward to this. This has now occurred. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited to you by God by miracles, wonders, and signs, uh, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. Right? This wasn't hidden in a corner. This is all public. You know this. This man was handed over to you. Now, here's Peter right, saying something. This is quite a contrast between Peter in the Gospels and Peter now in Acts 2. What's changed him? Well, resurrection. Ascension. Ultimately, giving the Spirit as well. But you remember Peter in the Gospels? When Jesus says to him, Who am I? He says, You're the Messiah. Jesus says, You're right. Uh, the Father revealed that to you. Right? And then Jesus says, I must suffer and die. Oh, no, Lord, you can't suffer and die, right? So there's really not a concept here that you must, you have to have a king and a Messiah that dies. Now look at what Peter says here. Verse 23, he says, Jesus was handed over to you, not by accident, not because he was in the wrong place at the wrong time, uh, not because he was a martyr and a victim and so on, right? Jesus was no victim. Right? He is the sovereign Lord who chose to go to the cross. He is the sovereign Lord as you look at the Gospels, right? And the disciples eventually saw this. He says, I've come to die. No one takes my life. I lay it down, right? And this is what Peter's picking up. The cross itself was preordained. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and form. Those two words together mean this was planned before the foundation of the earth. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 1, isn't it? The very plan of God is to ultimately send the Son and to hand everything up into him. Now, Peter's getting this. This man was handed over to you to fulfill the plan of God. You, though, are still responsible. Right? If you're a wicked man, you'll be held accountable for it. This was a travesty of justice, but don't think that humans can thwart God. Their very sin is what God used to bring about his sovereign purposes. That's a glorious truth. And he then says, you put him to death. But God raised him from the dead. Right? So you think we're rid of him. Right? Think of the crowds in the, in the gospel accounts. Right? Crucify him. Right? One week earlier, they're praising him. One week later, they're saying, we want nothing of him. And the one they rejected, God appoints, fulfilling his very purposes and plan. And then he quotes even Psalm 16. We won't look at this in terms of detail, but he's grounding again, even the resurrection. This is how Jesus says, as he's on the way to Emmaus, ought not you to have believed that the Christ would suffer and die anyway? He goes back to Old Testament text. Psalm 16 is a crucial one. David is the author, and David speaks about him not seeing corruption. And Peter makes it very clear David wasn't talking about himself. Right? You want proof of that? His tomb's right over there. We'll take a look. Right? He says, Brothers, in verse 29, I tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried. His tomb is here to this day. But David knew on oath. What is this referring to? This is referring to the Davidic covenant. God promised David and his offspring he would have one who would rule forever. Ultimately, that comes in Jesus. Jesus is the great Davidic king. He spoke ahead of him, speaking of the resurrection. So this Jesus who died was according to the very God's set purpose. This resurrection was already anticipated and planned and predicted. And then he says in verse 32, God raised this Jesus to life. We are all witnesses of this fact. And then he moves to ascension, which is really Acts 1. 
exalted to the right hand of God. Where did that happen? All just happened in chapter 1. He has, and then what has he done, right? This is the explanation for Pentecost. Right? He has died, he's been raised, he's now seated at the right hand of God. And what has he done? He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit promises from Joel 2. So they're saying, what's the meaning of this event? Well, some say he's drunk. No, they're not drunk. This is the fulfillment of the ages. In Christ, what the prophets look forward to is not here. This is proof positive that Jesus truly accomplished his work. It's finished. He is the king. He is the Lord. He is now poured out from the Father. You have both the work of the triune God, the Father, and the Son. Pour out the Spirit. What do you now see in here? So this is the explanation for these tongues of fire. This is the explanation for why they speak in the languages they do. God, the sovereign God of the universe, is at work in and through his Son. And his Son now has been exalted to his right hand. And he even grounds this in Psalm 110. Lord, said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for you. There's the explanation. Of course, the therefore is a very important in verse 36. Therefore, the conclusion is, let all Israel, right, I'm speaking to a Jewish audience, let all Israel be assured of this. Pentecost is proof positive that Jesus, whom you thought was nothing, whom you crucified, you said, I thought we were done with him. <laughs> no. The very proof of Pentecost is that he is Lord, which is another way of saying he is the name of God from the Old Testament, Yahweh, right? It's the name of his deity, right? He is Lord and Christ, Messiah, right? He is the, not just the Son of God in terms of his humanity, he is the eternal Son of Lord, right? He is the one who has assumed our humanity, accomplished our salvation, and now he, in that work of redemption, has become the Lord, right? In that sense, Jesus is Lord, the Son of God is Lord twice. He's always been Lord as the Son of God from eternity. Now he's Lord because he came and did something for us. He took on our humanity, he became last Adam, he restored all things, he's poured out the Spirit. The new age is dawn, and in fact, the new age, of course, is the new covenant and the new creation. In some sense, the new creation is dawn. Right? This world has been absolutely transformed. That's why he says, Jesus is Lord Christ. Now you say, where do we see Christ's Lordship demonstrated most vividly? Well, it's in all of his events. Pentecost is the culminating one. Without it, right, the prophets would not have been fulfilled. Right? The promises would not be fully given, and so on. Now, in this fourth area here, we begin to think of application, right? Well, one application he has in the therefore is, better make sure you know who Jesus is. Right? Therefore, he has made this Jesus Lord in Christ, right? You can't have a higher view of Jesus, right? He is the eternal Son of God. He is fully God. He is the one who is fully human. He alone is Lord and Savior, right? Uh, just this week ago, right? Uh, Ligonier Ministries and Lifeway, Southern Baptists, have put out again their state of theology poll. And it's a bad poll. It's a good poll, but it shows really bad theology in our churches. Many, many who identify as evangelicals will say they deny the deity of Christ. Uh, they view Jesus as the first and greatest created being, which is what the Jehovah's Witnesses teach. Right? Terrible, terrible theology. But we're reminded here, 
That won't cut it. The Jesus of the Bible is Lord. Means he's God. He's God the Son. It means that he is Messiah. He is the one who is accomplished. He's fully human. He's accomplished work. This means then that we must bow the knee to him. He's put everything under his feet. Pentecost shows that. We must bow to him. And that's why when the people see this, they begin to dawns on them in verse 37. This is why it's so serious. They begin to say, oh my. Given what you've said, given how he has fulfilled the Old Testament, given that he's both Lord and Christ, it's no wonder in verse 37 that they're cut to the heart. Right? They begin to realize, we crucified the Lord of glory. This is the one who is the one who rules over all things. He rules our lives. He's not only our creator, he's the sovereign Lord over all things. Right? And so they then say, what shall we do? Right? And the application to them, as it is to anybody, Repent, believe, baptize, and of course that's what he exhorts them to do. He pleads with them. That's why the gospel is urgent. Most of us here, right, profess faith in Christ, but we never assume, right? Jesus is no one to play with. Right? He's not just another religious figure, right? He's not just a good old buddy. Right? He's not just one to sort of integrate your psychology and consciousness, right? He is the Lord of the universe, right? He is the eternal Son, who's become a Son, who's accomplished our salvation. He deserves all of our loyalty, all of our faith, all of our confidence, all of our trust. So one of the applications here is we must repent and believe. We must be found in Him. Right? We must come under His Lordship and His salvation and so on and so on. And then one other application as we finish here is that in light of all of this, right, what encouragement is this? What allowed the early church to stand up boldly and proclaim Christ in a hostile world uh, and eventually lose their lives because they knew that Caesar or the Jewish leaders or anyone, they weren't Lord. This is what the book of Revelation gives to us, right? Jesus is Lord. Jesus is honest to God. We may face and we will face as the church trials and difficulty and persecution and suffering. If you don't think you're going to face that, you're not reading the New Testament. A whole lot of ours between the first and second coming is suffering and persecution. Yet, it's also the triumph of the gospel. It's the gospel that goes to all nations. It's the gospel that goes in this city to the end of other most parts of the earth. We have, even if the government of this land continues in its course and takes your life for standing for the truth. King Jesus is on his throne. It's not, it's no big deal to lose your life, right? He is coming again. It's just a matter of being translated into eternity. That's how the disciples thought, and what changed them is because they realized Jesus is the one who's Lord of Christ. He is the one who brought the new age to pass. We now live in the era of, right, the whole coming of the promises of God brought to fulfillment. Oh, that doesn't encourage us enough this week, right? This, I get very stirred by news around me. Right? Shut off the news, right? I have to be reminded Jesus is Lord of Christ. He is the one who has accomplished it. When you come back to the book of Ephesians, right? That's what the Apostle Paul is encouraging the Ephesian church with. He prays that they would know, right? They would know the power of Christ's resurrection in their life, the power of the ascension, the work of the Spirit. And the work of the Spirit is precious because without the Spirit, we would not have life. We would not be joined in Christ. We would not be transformed as His people. So that we, as the people of God, give thanks to the Father, as the Paul did in Ephesians 1, because of the Son. And because of the great work of the Spirit, 
Now I pray that as we've looked at this passage here, that it provides some of the underpinning to what Paul's saying. He's assuming all of this. And as he then turns to Ephesians 2 next week, right, we'll see how the great work of Christ in terms of his earthly events gets applied to us by the Spirit. Brings us to new life, transforms us. We're part of that great work that he has planned to return, passing time. We are his prized people, the apple of his eye, the church, because Christ has put all things under his feet for the church, right? To see the church grown, sanctified, glorified, and so on. So we are part of that. And if you're not part of that, right, you can be part of that, right? You can turn to Jesus, find in him salvation. Let's pray.